Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, with a message entitled, Wrestling with God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 32, verses 22 to 32, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I have a very precious memory. It's now more than a decade ago, but I remember it clearly. My son was leaving for a five-week mission trip to Guatemala to a place where very dear friends of Kathy and I have dedicated their lives in missions. Now, before our young son left, I went onto the internet and found the then U.S. State Department's description of that country. It was then listed as one of the most violent countries in Latin America. Armed gangs possessing submachine guns frequently hijack cars and buses. Crimes and murder happen frequently without any arrests as the police were either badly trained or may themselves have been accomplices. It felt like I was sending my son into an armed camp and my faith drained away and I was frightened. What would become of him? I was for a while like a man who had no faith at all. I even thought, why have I encouraged my son to care about missions and thus endanger his life? Well, I drove Jonathan to the airport in Seattle on New Year's Day. And when I came home, my anxiety had completely overtaken me so that when I got home, Kathy asked me, what has God said to you? I was about to answer, I don't know, when I suddenly realized God had spoken. As Jonathan and I were crossing the border, the U.S. border guard asked us the purpose of our trip, and I explained, I, you know, I was taking my son to SeaTac, and he was flying to Guatemala. And the border guard then asked if he knew any Spanish, and Jonathan said, not much. And then to both of our surprise, the border guard, who, by the way, was a Caucasian man, started speaking in Spanish to us at some length. And when he was done, he simply said in English, that was Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and he told us to be on our way. Well, that evening, in my anxiety and with, with Kathy's questioning, I realized what verse the border guard had quoted. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. <laughs> I suddenly realized, yeah, my issue was not my struggle with anxiety or my concern with my son's well-being. My issue was my struggle with God. Would I believe him or not? You know, I've entitled today's message, Wrestling with God. And if you're a believer, you also at times wrestle with God. Sometimes we wrestle with God because we're rebelling against his commands. You know, we simply don't want to submit. Sometimes we wrestle with God because we don't understand him or his ways or because we don't understand a passage in the scripture. Sometimes we wrestle with God because, like me, you're afraid to trust him with something that's precious to you. And today we're going to talk about wrestling with God and what we learn from these moments. More than anything, I hope to show you that there is a kind of wrestling with God that leads to something that's precious. So let's read today's text, Genesis 32, verses 22 to 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, 
And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is in the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, we have been studying the life of Jacob, and we have found him to be a grasping and conniving man to whom God showed mercy. Jacob, in our last section, had finally bent the knee before God. And the early part of Genesis 32 records his conversion. But Esau, the brother whom Jacob offended, the brother whom Jacob robbed and humiliated, is now bearing down on him with 400 armed fighting men. And Jacob thinks it's very likely that Esau is coming to kill him. And so Jacob is journeying home to confront his past. And it looks like this will be a short and cruel and final confrontation. So he comes to the Jabbok River, which flows into the Jordan River and thus crossing it, he now is very close to the promised land. He sends his family and all that he has across the river. And that night, he is left all alone. I suspect that he needed to be alone, for he had business to do with God. No doubt he would pray for mercy and protection, but I can only imagine that all along, his heart and mind would have been taken up in thoughts of his brother Esau. What would the morning hold? And then almost inexplicably, we read, a man wrestled with Jacob. Well, where did that man come from? Did they start with a conversation and end up in an argument that led to a fight? Or did this man simply run up to Jacob and tackle him and that led to wrestling? Or, or was Jacob the aggressor so that for some reason he attacked the man? Well, from the wording, it seems that the man who met Jacob was the aggressor. Well, one commentator suggests that Jacob was crying out to God in prayer, figuratively wrestling with God there in the dark. And, and suddenly he found himself in a real physical wrestling match and he couldn't tell how it began. <laughs> that sounds interesting. But in truth, we simply don't know how this happened. All the Bible says is that it did happen. That's strange. Let's go to verse 29. That question and answer is very similar to what happened to Manoah, the father of Samson. He asked to know an angel's name, and the angel said, Why do you ask me my name, seeing as it is wonderful? And later on, Manoah became terrified and says, I'm going to die. I have seen God. And Jacob comes to a very similar conclusion in verse 30. He thinks he has seen God face to face. He realizes he's been wrestling with God. Well, what do we make of that? I don't have the time to go into all the details, and I have spoken about this phenomenon before as we've studied Genesis. So let me do a little shortcut here and say that the man Jacob fought with here at the Jabbok was none other than Christ himself. So now the picture is really strange. Jacob is left praying alone with his worries and his anxieties. And then we find him in a wrestling match with Jesus. And the Hebrew language implies that there was dust flying everywhere. They were wrestling hard. They were in each other's grip. What do we make of that? First, notice that the struggle is with God and not with man. 
Now, I say this because up to this point in the story, we might conclude that Jacob's great struggle is with his brother or with Laban or with his family. But after all, it was Jacob who cheated his brother. And now his brother seems to be coming down on him with a small army. But instead of an armed struggle with Esau, we find Jacob in a wrestling match with God. I find this to be a kind of paradigm for life. I may say that my wrestling is with the anxiety over the safety of my son, as I've described it. And you might say you have a great struggle with your boss or a family member, perhaps even your own spouse. And you end up praying something like this, Lord, take this boss or work colleague or this crummy job away from me. And you spend all your time thinking, that's my problem. And you wonder why God's not answering your prayers and you're frustrated and you're even angry. So let's begin a lesson on biblical thinking right now, shall we? Here's the question. Does God sovereignly control all events? Yes or no? Listen to God's own words on this matter. Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. If that's not enough, listen to Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. Who has made man's mouth who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind. Is it not I, the Lord? See, the Bible argues for something that I like to call meticulous sovereignty, which means that God controls all things. That includes the large things, for instance. In Acts 4.28, it says that Herod and Pontius Pilate did whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. So, God controls the big things but he controls everything down to the smallest minutiae. You know, for instance, listen to Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That means every roll of the dice is controlled by God. And if that's true, and it is, then who has controlled the last 20 years of the hardship that Jacob has had with Laban? And who controls the fact that Esau is now on his way with 400 battle-hardened men? And so since that question has been answered, the second question is, whom is Jacob struggling with? And the answer is, he's actually wrestling with God. So are you. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada, and I want to share with you an important message. In the past couple of weeks, a group of individuals have come together in a unique way to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Together, they've raised pledges of $125,000 toward a ministry match campaign. That simply means for every dollar our supporters and listeners donate over the next few weeks, a matching dollar will be given by this group up to $125,000. We're so grateful for such generosity, those who have made this match pledge and to those who will respond so we might maximize its impact through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Could I ask you to take the opportunity today so that the entire pledge of $125,000 might be completely realized, totaling $250,000. Your gift of 25, 50, 100 or more will make this possible. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Struggling with God can be grace. It doesn't have to be bad. It can be good. 
Now look again at the beginning of verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, I've often marveled at that verse. If this is truly God in the person of his son, I would not have expected anything like this to have been said. This verse gives the impression that the man, the angel, Jesus, God, could not prevail because it says he saw that he was unable to beat Jacob. How can that be? I remember reading the story of C.S. Lewis' conversion in which he speaks of what he calls divine condescension, God deliberately limiting his power and might so that Lewis could find mercy. Here God comes to Jacob as a man and fights him in a human way. God could have knocked him down and overpowered him with a bolt of lightning and reduced him to ashes. Instead, he meets Jacob on his level and demands that he and Jacob do business with each other. And the wrestling match is on, and Jacob won't give up. They keep wrestling, and dust is flying, and they wrestle all night, and there is no winner. And so in an act of power, God reaches out and simply, to indicate his mighty power, he just touches his hip joint and immediately dislocates it. Oh, that must have hurt. In fact, the place of the hip is the wrestler's point of strength. That's part of what he uses to get an advantage over his opponent. Now Jacob can't win. He's wounded so that he's going to lose. But in the blinding pain, Jacob just won't let go. He's reduced to hanging on, and he clutches his opponent with all his might. And the man says, in effect, I could hurt you more. Now let me go. And Jacob, now realizing what he's up against, says, No, I won't until you bless me. See, that's where grace comes in. Grace is God withholding his condemnation and instead giving blessing. But there's also grace when a man will do anything just just to get that blessing. Now watch this. Before the blessing, the man asks Jacob, what is your name? (laughs) That's a question. The man already knows, but he forces an answer from the injured Jacob. My name is Jacob. My name is heel grabber. My name is conniver, deceiver. My name is the man who steals from others just to get ahead. My name is Jacob. But even though that's who I am, I'm still clinging to you until I get a blessing. (laughs) You know, struggling with God can lead to an insight. You know, in a way, Jacob has always been wrestling with God, except he didn't know it until, well, this moment. But there are at least two ways to wrestle with God. One is to refuse to submit. That was the old Jacob. The second is never let go of God, which is what Jacob is doing right now. And everything depends on whether or not he receives grace. And so as Jacob has just confessed his name to the man, then comes the man's response. I'm going to change your name. You know, in the First Testament, the idea of changing someone's name means that you demonstrate your absolute authority over that person. Well, the best-known example of that is in Daniel. Daniel's taken a prisoner to Babylon. He's one of the young nobles of Judah, and the king, who is King Nebuchadnezzar, changes his name to Belteshazzar. The name Daniel meant, God is my judge. But the name Belteshazzar means, may the pagan god Bel look after him and protect his life. In other words, with a name change comes a new identity and a new way of looking at the world. So renaming someone is to take over their life and direct their destiny. And now comes one of those moments that changes history. Jacob, heel grabber, becomes Israel, the one who wrestles with God. He now is known as the one who won't let go of his God. And that, boys and girls, 
is how the nation of Israel got its name. I find it fascinating that the book of Revelation speaks about our renaming. Did you know that? Look up Revelation 2.17 when you get the chance. And if I were to tell you what I think my old name is, well, I'd say it goes like this. My name is Worrier, or the man who becomes quickly anxious. But I will hold to God, and my new name will be the one who has the peace that passes all understanding. How about you? What's your old name? Do you know, years ago, I I heard someone say that everyone has their own sin style. And I've pondered over that, and I think it's probably true. One person can't be trusted with money. The next person is quickly angered. Another struggles with lust, and still another gossips and maligns others, and still someone else is prone to idolatry and can easily be misled by strange winds of doctrine. And if you get insight, you'll come to reflect on your own name. But imagine the grace of a new name. And we should say, you know, my name was Heart of Stone, but now it's Heart of Flesh. It's not the old man. Instead, it's the new creation. What if the place of your deepest weakness became the place of God's grace? Now, as fascinating as everything else is in this text, what what happens next is the climax of the story. Jacob realizes that he has seen God face to face, yet his life has been spared. He wrestled with God and lived to see a new day. And so as the sun rises, Jacob crosses the Jabbok, and he's limping. His hip is out of joint. It's indeed an amazing thing about this encounter is that Jacob entered the night in prayer, pleading with God because he was so vulnerable. Esau is bearing down on him. And he ends the night wrestling with God, and it's now that he's more vulnerable than ever before. He can't run because each step is painful, and he can't fight because the point of his bodily strength has been disabled. You might look at this story and say, well, that makes no sense at all. Why would God reduce all this man's chances of survival? I want to tell you of Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. He tells of the greatness of the revelations that God has given him and how this has a tendency to make him proud. And so he writes, so to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I wonder how many of us can say the same thing. I'm content with weakness. I'm content with insults. I'm content with hardships. I'm content if I have been humbled, even humiliated. Isn't it true that for many of us, we have made it the entire nature of our prayer life to ask God to take weakness from us? We've never been content with weakness. The last thing we want is to walk away from encounter of wrestling with God and to find out that now we are reduced to limping. It makes no sense. Or what if your wrestling with God was shaped with this thought, God, I won't let go of you until you bless me. So let me tell you one of the greatest lessons we can get from this text. Helpless and limping, that is the proper posture of a saint, of a servant of Jesus. 
I want to read to you a poem that I've kept in my files for many a year, and I've often turned to it because, well, frankly, I find it one of the most encouraging things I've ever read. I've been somewhat afraid of this poem, but I'm greatly comforted by it. So let me read it. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world might be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts besieging hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, with mighty acts induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. The author is unknown. I wonder how many of us can rejoice in those thorns in our flesh. I speak this way because I often hear of a Christian who suffers and then says, you know, I almost lost my faith. In fact, I hear that so much, I've come to wonder whether any of us have had faith at all. That is, not like Jacob, or should I say, like Israel, helpless, limping, and depending entirely on his God. That's what Peter wrote about in 1 Peter 6 and 7. He speaks about going through trials to test the genuineness of our faith. Just like gold that gets refined in fire, so this faith gets refined in God's fire. And the fire tells us whether our faith is genuine or not, but more so, the fire molds the kind of faith that we have. John, explain this better for me. The whole idea you said that uh, he was helpless and limping, that is the proper posture of a saint. Yeah, and uh, yes, it is. God is determined to make us that way. It is when we finally confess before the Lord, I have no other options. I'm, I'm out of ideas. I've got nothing I can rely on and lean on but you. And in the end, that's what God wants of us. He's going to take away all of our props but himself, and then we recognize that we are on the, the best possible ground that we can be. Uh, I, I remember uh, years ago, Ben, somebody telling me, uh, I never trust a pastor who doesn't limp. And uh, that was uh, kind of funny to me, but I think it's, it's very true and should be of all of us. Thanks so much, John. Remember, join us again next week for the continuation of the series Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This month, join us as Dr. Neufeld continues with Volume 4 of his Genesis series entitled Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. This series follows the lives of Isaac and Jacob, tracing both the promises of God and the shortcomings brought about by their disobedience. And yet God is gracious and faithful to his promises. In this series, we will discover that God's promises of grace are far greater than our frailty and sin. So, join us throughout the month of June for Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. You can also listen to the first three volumes of the series or purchase them online at backtothebible.ca. And if you'd like more information or if you'd like to contribute to our special fiscal year-end campaign in support of all of the ministry programs of Back to the Bible Canada, call today at one 800 663 
888-242-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.